This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on Christ in the Old Testament. The scripture reading today is taken from the book of the Second Kings, chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. The company of prophets said to Elisha, Look, the place where we meet with you is too small for us. Let us go to the Jordan, where each of us can get a pole, and let us build a place there for us to meet. And he said, Go. Then one of them said, Won't you play... Won't won't you please come with your servants? I will, Elisha replied, and he went with them. They went to the Jordan and began to cut, cut down the trees. As one of them was cutting down a tree, the iron axe head fell into the water. Oh no, my lord, he cried out. It was borrowed. The man of God asked, where did it fall? When he, when he showed him, when he showed him the place, Elisha cut a stick and threw it there and made the iron float. Lift it out, he said. Then the man reached out his hand and took it. This is the word of the Lord. We are working our way through a series on Christ in the Old Testament because we really do believe that Jesus is at the center of all of Scripture. And that this is not like a Where's Waldo game where we're trying desperately to find some slight hint of Jesus in Scripture. It all speaks about him. And if our hearts love Christ and our eyes have been opened by the Holy Spirit, we're going to begin to see him everywhere. So here we are working our way through the spine, the historical spine of the Old Testament. Before we hit the wisdom books, before we hit the prophets, we're in the book of Second Kings. I'm not going to lie, if you struggle with depression, this may not be the book for you. It's a dark book of decline and downfall and destruction. The book picks up the history of the separated kingdoms of Israel and Judah begun in 1 Kings. It's really one big fat book. This is the second part. 1 Kings had begun with the construction of Solomon's temple, this beautiful, glorious house where God was going to dwell on Mount Zion in the midst of his people. This is the very highest point of Israel's history. The story begins with the building of the temple. Second Kings ends with the destruction of the temple. The besieging Babylonian army smashes through the gates of Jerusalem. They loot the temple of all its beautiful treasures and carved ornaments. They burn it down to the ground and they take the royal family and all the elite, basically everyone but the peasants, into exile into Babylon. I warned you, it's depressing. And the northern kingdom of Israel had already fallen to the Assyrians 124 years before. They'd been deported to Assyria, and then the ten tribes simply vanish from history. Unless you're a Mormon, and then they show up in North America, but that's well beside the point. The story told in these pages is the long decline of these two kingdoms. We need to keep in mind, this twofold book was written for the Jews in exile in Babylon. They're mourning for their glory days, and they're asking themselves, how did this happen? Because we were the chosen people. We were the apple of God's eye. And he brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. 
He overthrew the mighty Egyptian empire. He planted us in this inheritance promised to Abraham, a land flowing with milk and honey. Our future seemed so bright. How did we end up here as prisoners in the heart of this pagan empire? How did we fall so far from the good plan of God? Now, First and Second Kings is the theological answer to this question. It's not just the dry recitation of historical facts. It's a God-saturated interpretation of history. And it demonstrates that the people of God had repeatedly and shamefully broken covenant with God, with their Redeemer. And if only they had kept the faith, if only they'd stayed loyal to God, their Savior, they would have enjoyed all the blessings promised to them in the book of Deuteronomy. But in Deuteronomy, there was also a mountain of cursing where God, through Moses, had also uttered terrible threats. Here are all the awful things that will happen to you if you turn away from God. And so Judah's defeat at the hands of the Babylonians and their exile away from the promised land, far from calling the faithfulness of God into question, actually vindicates his justice. It shows that God has kept his word, even as this history confronts the Jews with their own failings. 2 Kings chapter 17 reflects on the fall of the northern kingdom. After this all happened, explain, here's exactly why Assyria destroyed Israel. It wasn't just an accident of history. It wasn't just these mighty empires grinding against each other and catching these small kingdoms between. It's because of Israel's idolatry. It's because of their injustice. It's because of their covenant breaking. They burned incense to these pagan gods on every high hill and under every lush tree. They'd work sorcery and divination. They'd pass their sons through the fire, possibly an allusion to child sacrifice. They'd stiffened their necks against God in rebellion. They went after empty breath and did empty things, is the final summation. Instead of the full, abundant life of covenant loyalty in the presence of God in God's land, they've fallen in love with death, and they've become as empty and insignificant as the gods they worshipped. And you know, what's remarkable is that in the middle of this long, sorry, depressing story of national decline, we find that God is at work in Israel through these wonder-working prophets, Elijah and Elisha. Because the heart of this two-part book is the power of the word of God. And it's quite literally at the center of these two volumes. Elijah dominates the second half of 1 Kings, his successor, Elisha, overshadows the first half of 2 Kings. And these prophets are not mere magicians or future tellers. They're the watchdogs of the covenant. They're courageously standing before kings and confronting them with their evil. They're speaking truth to power, and they're summoning the nation, repent, return to God, and you will enjoy life and blessing and favor. There are many prophets in the Old Testament, but what's especially notable about Elijah and Elisha is that they not only speak the word of God, these are wonder-working prophets. And I think we often assume that the Old Testament is just full of miracles consistently from beginning to end, but they're actually, if you read it, they're relatively rare occurrences. Seems like hundreds of years go by with nothing noticeable happening, and then there are these clusters 
And there's two main clusters, one around Moses and his successor Joshua, and the other around Elijah and his successor Elisha. I mean, Elijah had done incredible things by the power of God. I mean, he'd summoned fire down from heaven, for goodness sake. Doesn't get any more miraculous than that. And then Elijah ascended into heaven in a whirlwind, and he leaves his mantle and a double portion of his spirit to Elisha, who performs even more miracles, by some countings exactly twice as many as Elijah. He parts the Jordan River, he raises a dead child to life, he heals a foreign general of a skin condition, and performs many, many more wonders, including this odd little story of the floating axe head that Leo read for us in 2 Kings chapter 7. The story is told pretty quickly. Elisha is at the head of a group of prophets in training, and they've outgrown their ministry center. And Elisha comes along with them as they head down to the Jordan to cut down some trees to construct a new commune for themselves, a new set of buildings. And these guys have about as much money as most seminary students do. They can't afford to hire an architect or a construction crew. But with a little sweat, they can assemble at least something crude and serviceable. But as one of them's cutting down a tree beside the river, his iron axe head, which seems to have been loosened from the handle by repeated blows, somersaults through the air, almost in slow motion as the horrified worker watches, before plunging straight down into the murky Jordan River. Our translation has the man crying out, Oh no! And some more traditional translations have him saying, Alas! I think it may have been another four-letter word that escaped his lips. And he turns to Elijah with a pale face, and he says, it was borrowed. And you have to understand, it wasn't just the inconvenience and the embarrassment of losing this accent that's causing this man to freak out. You can almost imagine him going back to the person he borrowed or rented the accent from, and the guy saying, okay, so where's the axe I lent you? You lost it. How do you lose an accent? You dropped it in the river? Like, what were you fooling around with? How on earth does this happen? What kind of an idiot are you? It wasn't just the embarrassment. You have to understand that an axe was a very valuable item. And even though by this time we're well into the Iron Age, we know from the Bible that Israel lagged quite a bit behind their more technologically advanced neighbors. And an iron axe head might well have been beyond the ability of anyone in Israel to forge they probably would have had to acquire this item at great cost from foreign traders. So it wasn't just a matter of this prophet heading down to Domino and picking up a Tolson axe with a wood handle for 25 lari and 90 cents. There are seven in stock in Dagomi and four at East Point Mall, in case anyone would like to know. I'm trying to make my messages more practical. Hope that's helpful. Losing this axe head was more like totaling your friend's car. And the law of Moses made it quite clear, if you borrow something and you lose it or you destroy it, you are 100% liable for this thing, to replace it or pay for its value. And if you don't have the money and you can't borrow it, you may well have to sell yourself into slavery to raise the cash. So maybe now you can see why this guy is freaking out. The axe head has sunk deep down into the reeds and into the silt. The whole school of the prophets could poke around for a year in this river and never find the thing. It's gone. And as he's standing there, staring at the river, Elisha comes over and asks him, so where did it fall in? And the guy points to the spot. And then as all the prophets are watching, 
Elisha cuts a stick and he tosses it into the river at that very spot. And wouldn't you know it, the iron axe head bobs up to the surface. And Elisha has to tell the stunned fellow, like, don't just stand there watching. Go grab the thing before it floats down the river. Catastrophes averted. The man is saved from crippling debt and possible slavery. And the building project can resume. Now, it's a charming little story, isn't it? About God unleashing miraculous power and even reversing the normal course of nature, all for the sake of one very relieved person. It's a very personal and a very bespoke miracle. But you know, in the Bible, even personal miracles are never private. Every wonder is also a sign. And why would it have been recorded if not for the instruction of the people of God? You know, a good question to ask ourselves when we're reading the Bible, especially these strange Old Testament stories, is now how would the original audience of this book, reading this story, how would they have understood it? How would it have spoken to their hearts? How would this strange little miracle of the floating accent, how would it have spoken to the Jewish exiles who were weeping beside the rivers of Babylon? And you know, I think they would have received this story as a reminder that when all seems lost, God can manifest his power in surprising ways and turn catastrophe into rejoicing. And if anyone was lost, it was the Jews in exile. In fact, the whole 45-chapter story in First and Second Kings, we could read it as a description of a tool that has escaped from the hand of its owner, falling down, 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 through the dark water to the very bottom. And over the centuries, Israel is pulled down by the gravity of its own sin, away from God, away from the light, until they sink down into the ooze of exile, hidden, forgotten, beyond human recovery. And their fate is simply now to lie there and await inevitable disintegration, the same way the northern kingdom had worn away and disappeared before them. But now this story suggests a new possibility that perhaps in God's strange kindness, he might do something beyond human imagining, that he might raise Israel from the dead and bring her bobbing to the surface, cleansed and ready to be used to construct God's dwelling on earth again. You know, if you flip to the very end of 2 Kings chapter 25, it ends on a curious note. It describes the last king of the house of David, King Jehoiakim. He's in his prison house in Babylon. And then a new king arises to the throne in Babylon. And he remembers Jehoiakim. He lifts up his face. He has him change his garment. And he invites him to eat at the royal table. And that's how the book ends. And it gives a glimmer of hope. And I mean the very thinnest slice of a glimmer of hope that there may be a future for the house of David yet, that the stump of Jesse might still bring forth a great king to bring God's people back home to God's land under God's presence. That's how I think the Jews may well have read this story in exile. But you know, if you sit down and push your depression and read through 2 Kings and these chapters of Elisha, you might have a strange experience like I did. Because the many miracles of Elisha 
will remind you of the ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. Although, of course, the people then had the opposite experience, what Jesus was doing would have brought Elisha right into their minds. Let me quote for you something from my Old Testament professor, Bruce Waltke. Very sweet old man. He's 92 years old now, wonderful Old Testament commentator. And he, he's reading Elisha and he's reflecting on the similarities between Elisha and Jesus. Listen to this. He writes, both are designated by a prophet, Elijah, John the Baptist, whom the general populace recognized as a true prophet. Both receive the spirit on the other side of the Jordan, are surrounded by more disciples than their predecessors, are itinerant miracle workers, give life in a land of death, cleanse lepers, heal the sick, reverse death by raising dead sons and restoring them to their mothers, help widows in desperate circumstances, feed the hungry with baskets left over, minister to the Gentiles, have a covetous disciple, and they end their lives in a life-giving tomb from which people flee. Too many parallels to be a coincidence. And we find that in the ministry of Jesus, there's a time even more than with Moses and Joshua and Elijah and Elisha, when heaven comes very close to earth, when God manifests his power and his presence to his people in an utterly unprecedented way. And all Jesus' many, many, many miracles, of course, express care for the particular person that he's cleansing and healing and raising. He's not just showing off his power for its own sake. They're always an act of very particular love for very particular people. But these wonders are also signs. They're enacted parables of the kingdom. They're metaphors that point to Jesus saving the whole world from sin and sickness and Satan and death. You know, Israel's just the story of the world in miniature. Because Adam was the instrument in God's hand meant to build God's temple on earth, and he escaped from God's hands and brought the whole human race behind him deep down into death. It's the inexorable gravity of the fall that we all feel pulling us down. The thing is that the human race is unbelievably precious to God, far more valuable than the prophet's lost accent. And God is not going to turn away from the riverside and forget about us. Instead, he strips off and plunges into the river. Not even standing on the shore and throwing something in. He goes in himself. It's the long descent of the word of God that Paul describes in Philippians 2. Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage but rather he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. You know, the raising of the axe head is an easy thing for God. Some people are very troubled by miracles in the Bible, but if you grant the existence of God, this is not a problem. But the rescue of humanity from the ooze is costly for God. Dare I say it? Difficult for God. And it comes through the costly sacrifice of Jesus. You know, in my undergraduate exegesis classes, I was told the text can only mean what the original author meant. The meaning is very focused and limited to its historical sense. 
Thank God that's not how Jesus read the Old Testament, not how the apostles read the Old Testament, not how the early church read the Old Testament. And they realized that by the Spirit, there is a fullness of meaning, a deep symbolism beyond even what the original writers realized. And to a man, the early church fathers who reflect on this passage in 2 Kings, they all link the piece of wood that Elisha tosses into the river with the tree on which our Lord was crucified. Because the sacrificial death of the Son of God is so powerful that it causes the laws of nature to work backwards. And what is lost, sunk, buried, and even dead, shoots back up into the sunlight. Let me quote from you from the 4th century hymn writer Ephraim the Syrian. He was known as the harp of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that a wonderful title? He wrote, The wood descended. The iron has emerged because Emmanuel died, was buried, and went down to the infernal regions of earth. And from there, he has come back. And in his ascension, he has lifted up Adam from the deep toward the heights. And brothers and sisters, all of us who have emerged from the waters of baptism share in this very story. We haven't sinned in exactly the same way that Adam sinned or Israel sinned, but we have turned away from the living God towards idols. We have stiffened our necks and chosen death. And all of us have experienced the gravity of sin pulling us down and away from God. We were lost and forgotten, but there is nowhere we can flee from his presence. And even in the deepest places, he speaks the word, awake. And somehow, through the miraculous transforming power of God, this lump of iron was changed into a heart of flesh. And the burden of the guilt of our sins, which had weighed us down, was lifted from our shoulders And we shot up into the warmth of God's sunlight. You know, there is one more parallel between Jesus and Elisha, because there is a story in the Gospels, too, about Jesus overcoming gravity, lifting up not a sinking axe head, but a sinking disciple. Peter, who was well-named the rock, following Jesus out of the boat and plunging down towards the bottom, And Jesus reaches out and lifts him up so he can walk on the water. Which is what Jesus has done for all of us who've believed in his name. The story in 2 Kings 7 seems implausible to an unbelieving mind. But you know what's a lot more implausible? Is what I'm looking at right now. A river full of floating axe heads people who've been raised to new life by the Spirit of God, whose heavy natures have been made buoyant by the life-giving word of Christ. And you know what Jesus has done for our souls in lifting them from the miry clay? He promises to do to our bodies also in the final resurrection. You know, after paradise, there was an iron law in this world. Everything will die. But the light of the world went down into the darkness, and he overcame it. He conquered it. And we're all going to go into the ground 
and decompose. But we'll be waiting for something. The same words that Jesus said outside the tomb of his friend Lazarus. Come forth. Come forth. I am the gravity reverser. And I make death itself work backwards. Because I hold its keys on my belt. Jesus is going to free all of us from the ooze, from the darkness. He's going to set our feet upon the rock forever and put a song of praise to God on our lips. Brothers and sisters, we worship a God who works wonders, unbelievable wonders. And in our exile in this fallen world, with all the trials and sorrows we have to contend with, God reminds us today, you are not forgotten. You're not buried. You're not hidden. Soon and very soon, I'm going to lift you up and bring you to your true home. Shall we bow our heads and pray that God would give us the faith to believe that in the darkness? Great God of wonders, we thank you today that we have more than this tiny little shaving of a sliver of hope at the end of Second Kings, that we stand in the full sunshine of the resurrected Son of God. And Lord, in our darkness, in our confusion, in our struggles, when we feel far from you, help us to remember Jesus Christ is risen. He has conquered death. He has conquered sin. He's conquered Satan. And all those things that pull us down, which seem so inexorable, so irresistible, so powerful, he can nullify in a moment and bring us soaring upwards into your presence. Fill us with your spirit, O Lord. Strengthen our faith and help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, our solid rock, our only hope. In his name we pray. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.